Good morning. Dave, I'm going to do what I'm not supposed to do and move this thing. Oh, we got the duct tape thing happening here. All right, maybe I won't move it. Well, maybe for the mic, it needs to be higher. That's all right. We didn't know you grew last week. That's great. Thank you. Just a little, a little out of the way. Yes, thank you very much. Well, my exercise of choice is running. I don't know how many more years I'm going to get to do that, but while I can do that, that's what I enjoy. It's just a very efficient way to exercise. And it's sort of surprising that I'm still doing it because it's so hard to do. If you've ever tried running as an exercise, you know, there's, lots, there's easier things like watching television or things like that. Not quite as effective, but boy, it's a lot easier. And I've been doing it for a long time. I, I started running when I was in high school and just sort of kept it up through the years. In fact, I ran my first marathon back in 1993. It's a lot better to say that I ran my first marathon rather than saying I ran my last marathon, <laughs> but both are true. 1993, the Cow- Cowtown Marathon in Fort Worth. It was, it was um, terrible. It was just terrible. <laughs> but what, what makes marathons so difficult is, that, um, is the middle of it. The beginning's easy. I mean, you feel great. You've got lots of energy. The crowd is all with you. Everyone's excited. You run the first mile way faster than you should because everyone's, you know, doing the same thing. You just got this adrenaline rush. And then, of course, the end, you know, you're excited about being done. But, boy, then there's that messy middle, that, that 24 miles of just you and God. The middle is what's hard, isn't it? I remember once when I was training for the marathon, is another time where you're just sort of you and God. But I was running along, and, you know, I wasn't running particularly fast. It was one of those sort of shuffles that, that, that you do. And this pickup truck full of men who had nothing better to do than to, you know, catcall at the, at the poor guy just barely making it, drove by, and they slowed down right beside me. You know, I wasn't going much faster than a walk anyway. They slowed down right beside me, which sort of makes you nervous. And this, this one guy kind of leans out and looks at me, and he says, Hey, man, when you get tired of walking, why don't you run? <laughs> and then they drove off. And I thought, man, I'll show you some running. I wanted to catch up to him and let him know what I really thought, but... Boy, we've got plenty of people in pickup trucks throughout life, don't we? And so few people in our marathon that cheer us. I love that our class is called that because that is a great metaphor for the Christian life. It is a long run, and it is not over till we break the tape. (laughs) Another funny thing about that marathon is that I thought a marathon was 26 miles. I mean, ask ask your average person how long is a marathon. They said 26 miles. It's not. It's (laughs) 26.2. And so I crossed mile 26 going, how long is this thing? I thought maybe it's 36. 
Turns out we just turned a corner and then it was done. And, oh, it was terrible. So unless you're in great shape, I don't recommend marathons, but running as a general exercise is great because it's a good metaphor for life. So much in the Christian life feels like you're running. Uh, whenever I'm running, almost without exception, I have two great temptations. That's either to just quit, just stop, and, or, or to take a shortcut. Because when you're running, you know all the shortcuts. I mean, there's a faster way home than doing this whole complete thing. And there's always a good reason in your mind to take a shortcut. Christian life is like that, too. You want to just quit. Or you want to find a shortcut because you were tired of how long this has taken. Well, let's turn together to the book of 1 Thessalonians and get some encouragement to keep going and keep growing. 1 Thessalonians. A lot of the books of the New Testament are titled after their author, like 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, the Gospel of John, uh, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, Jude. But then when you have, like, Paul, who wrote 13 books, rather than saying 13th Paul, we begin to call Paul's books the recipients, like Romans are those who received it. He wrote to the Romans, or he wrote to Titus, or to Timothy, or to Philemon. Um, the book of 1 Thessalonians was written to the church in Thessalonica. And when you go to Greece today, you can actually go to the town called Thessaloniki, which is ancient, where the, the location of ancient Thessalonica. It's not much left of ancient Thessalonica there in modern Thessaloniki. It's basically a little bit of ruins the size of a football field you look at, and that's it. But in Paul's day, this was a significant city. And uh, now that you've got your place in 1 Thessalonians, turn back, keep your finger there, turn back to the maps, and let's look at where this happened. Back in the back of your Bible, you should have at least one map. It would be great if you had three. But my, uh, my map has all three crammed here together on this little bitty page. But you're looking for the second journey. And so if you look at the, the, whole, the journeys of Paul there, look, you can see where all the arrows go, and look at sort of the top left where it sort of peaks there, and you should see the areas of Philippi and Thessalonica. Do you see that up at the top? Well, find whatever arrow represents the second journey. And uh, if you can't find that arrow, we'll just walk through it real quick. But remember, the second journey, Paul uh, began there in modern Turkey on the right and then got the vision of the Macedonian man and Troas, you can see Troas there, they crossed over and landed at Neapolis, and then they had a short walk to Philippi. And Philippi, you remember when we looked at the book of Philippians a couple weeks ago, Philippi is where the first convert of Europe occurred when uh, Lydia trusted Christ. And we didn't get into it, but if we were to read from Acts chapter 16, Paul was persecuted there, and Paul and Silas, and so they left. And when they left, they, they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia and came to Thessalonica. In Thessalonica, they were able to share, but then they were run out of town there as well. And then from Thessalonica, they went to Berea. And then at Berea, if we were to read in Acts chapter 17, Paul left 
um, Timothy and Silas at Berea and actually sent Timothy back to Philippi to check on everybody to make sure they were okay because they were run out of town and Paul wanted to make sure that the Christians were still walking the walk and still believing everything that Paul said. And Paul, on the other hand, was ushered down to Athens. So you can see Paul goes down to Athens at the south there. And uh, Acts 17 says that while he was waiting on Timothy to come, Paul preached there in Athens to the uh, philosophers on Mars Hill. And then Timothy comes. And then together they go, if you keep, keep looking, to Corinth. And it's while they're at Corinth that Paul writes to the Thessalonians. So now turn back to 1 Thessalonians. Now we go through that whole rigmarole of his journeys because Paul sort of recounts all that in the book of 1 Thessalonians. We've said it before, but let's just repeat it real quickly because it's helpful, especially when we start a new journey here. Paul had three missionary journeys, and he wrote several books on each journey uh, or throughout the journey. So the first missionary journey, he wrote one book, which was Galatians. The second missionary journey, which we just sort of followed, he wrote two books, first and second Thessalonians. And one just boom, boom, right after the other. And then the third journey, of course, he wrote three books. And in Rome, he wrote four books, as we've talked about. But the point is, his whole second missionary journey, he only wrote two books, and both to the same city, the Thessalonians. Look at uh, 1 Thessalonians 1, right in verse 1. Paul and Silvanus, or that's also Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. Look down at verse 9. He talks about the people who have given a good report of the Thessalonians. They themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you, how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. So Timothy brings good news, and they are excited about it. Paul says, I'm excited about it. It's great to hear, in verse 2, that, uh, that you're, you're doing a good job. We give thanks to you for this. Timothy's back. In fact, I'll include his name here in the letter, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. And then in verse 9, he basically says, he summarizes what's true of them, of the Thessalonians. You turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. And in that summary, we essentially also have the summary of our lives. Notice the, um, uh, the specifics here. You turn to God from idols to do two things. First, to serve a living and true God, and second, to wait for his son from heaven. To serve, to wait. To serve God, to wait for Christ. That's the summary of our lives right there, isn't it? This is what we're to do. We are, we are here. We have turned from the world. We have turned from idols to serve the one living true God. And while we're doing that, We've got two things to do, to serve and to wait, to wait for Jesus. And, and what is Jesus going to do? What are we waiting for Jesus to do? We're told at the end of verse 10, Jesus rescues us from the wrath to come. Now, we'll see more about that here in just a little bit, but 
this is something uh, that, we're, that we're waiting on. We're waiting on Christ for something. He is going to rescue us from the wrath to come. So we won't read chapters 2 and 3, but if we were to get into the details of it, we'd see that Paul reminds them of the events of the second missionary journey. And you just walk down through there, you can almost have uh, Acts chapter 16 and 17 and 1 Thessalonians 2 and 3 right there side by side and just sort of track along. You can see what Luke is saying happened in the book of Acts. Paul is recounting all of that, here, or some of that, here in uh, 1 Thessalonians 2 and 3. And then in chapter 3, look down at verse 6 and 7. Let's pick it up there and read a few verses here. Verse 6, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love, that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you. For this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. So Timothy brings the good news. They haven't, you know, gone astray. Even though Paul is not there, God is with them, and they've stayed faithful. They were living the Christian life. And Paul says, I am encouraged. And boy, that is encouraging, isn't it? Not just the Thessalonians. I mean, that's great, but we can't really connect with them. Think about the people in your life that when you hear, maybe you haven't talked to them in a while, or maybe today's your first time in a year to see somebody who's not been in class or whatever, and what do you know? They're still walking with God. That's great. When family and friends indicate that they're walking with the Lord, with your kids or your grandkids or friends you haven't seen in a while, boy, there is nothing more encouraging to hear that someone else is doing the hard work of the Christian life right alongside you. It's wonderful. Uh, think of uh, what John writes to in, uh, I think it's 1 John. He says, There's no I have no greater joy than to know that my children are walking in the truth. For that he meant his disciples, but that also works for us. Well, I tell you, there's no greater joy that to know that, that uh, for Kathy and me to know that our daughters are walking with God. Anything else can happen. And uh, that, that is such a big help. So Paul says, we're encouraged by this. And notice, it's sort of a, an under-the-table application, but Paul affirms them in this. That's a great application for us. You see somebody walk in with Christ, tell them how much you appreciate that. Tell them how much that you're encouraged by their faithfulness. Because, boy, we need examples of people who are faithful. And to see somebody who is walking with the Lord and affirming them. Be an encourager. Don't be the guys in the pickup. You know, we, we think we are doing somebody a favor by pointing out their faults. You know, they're probably aware of them. Because that pickup is full of people eager to tell you what you're doing wrong. There wasn't anybody in the pickup saying, go, Wayne, you can do it. Keep running. We're going to drive off, but I'll tell you, I'll be thinking about you. Not one. They drove off laughing at me. Right? <laughs> right. Don't be that person. Be an encourager. Find something that you can encourage somebody for. They need to hear it. They don't hear it often enough. So look at chapter 4, very first verse. 
Paul writes, Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Note here, in these two verses, Paul isn't saying, excel still more so that God will be pleased with you. He says, um, you receive the instruction how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk. You are already pleasing God with your walk. But then he also adds, excel still more. Even if you are walking with Christ in a perfectly faithful way, excel still more, Paul says. Grow. Be committed to a lifetime of growth. He says, God is pleased. You're walking in a manner that pleases God. Paul had told him, you're doing great. He affirms them. He says, fantastic. Now, excel still more. Don't be content with where you are. And there's principle number one. If I could word it this way, the first principle we can pull from the text today is that our serving and waiting for Christ includes a commitment to continual growth. Our serving and waiting for Christ includes a commitment to continual growth. Paul said that God, uh, that they had turned to God from idols to serve him, and to wait for him, and then Paul challenges them, be committed to continual growth. Our serving and waiting for Christ includes a commitment to excelling still more. Paul told them, you know the instruction? I've given it to you. Uh, you know, I think a lot of times we come to church or we, we buy new books or we read, uh, you know, we get a new study Bible or we're, we're after the latest, newest thing in the Christian life to try to give us something that we've never heard before. And Paul is saying, um, you're familiar with the commands. You're, in fact, you're doing them. He says, now let me tell you something brand new. He doesn't say that, at least not yet. In this context, he says, excel still more. Success in the Christian life, I hope you've discovered, because I've definitely discovered it, is doing the basics well. It's not, you know, getting all the fine-tuned details of, you know, premillennial, pre-tribulational theology. I mean, those are there. They're available. But Paul emphasizes over and over, and the life of Christ emphasizes over and over, to excel at the basics. And Paul is saying this to them. You're doing a great job. Excel still more at the commands that we've given you. And speaking of excelling, he, uh, he gives them something specific to excel at. Look at verse 3. He says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. This is the will of God, he says, your 
sanctification. And he uses that word a couple of times. He uses it there in verse 3, uses it in verse 4, uses it in verse 7, which we haven't read yet, but there it is. Sanctification. That's not a word we use a lot, except in church. But it's something we do all the time. To sanctify something is to take something and to set it apart for a special use. You're dedicating something, you're sanctifying it to make it special. Like right now, I don't know, what is it? This is, uh, we've got three months, four months until my daughter's wedding. We're sanctifying all kinds of stuff. I mean, we've got dresses set aside, we've got shoes set aside. Me, I'm just going to wear my dark suit. I've got it ready. I'll probably wear it three or four times before that. But everybody else is sanctifying stuff. And, of course, the wedding dress, that is like sanctum sanctified. <laughs> you know, that is, that's not worn until the day. It is definitely set aside. Can you think of a more... I, 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 I want to get to it. I was going to say, talk about something financial in regarding to that wedding dress. <laughs> but... I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to go there. But the point is, we sanctify all the time, if you think about it. We've got things that we set aside for special purposes, whether it's a gift, whether it's a weekend, whether it's a savings account. It's something part of our life. Paul says, your dedication to God is like that. That's what sanctification means, is a dedication. If something is sanctified, it's dedicated. And Paul says, I want you to grow in your sanctification. I want you to excel still more in this area. Um, and notice he says in verse 4, or he says, uh, he starts almost each of these verses with the word for. In verse 3, he says, for, in other words, I'm about to explain how your sanctification works. That is that you abstain from sexual immorality and that each of you know how to possess his own vessel. That's a bit of a wooden translation. It's a literal translation, but what in the world does that mean, to possess your own vessel? Some have said that it means that you need to have a wife uh, or acquire a wife. Um, the New International Version gives a translation which is really more of a paraphrase or a, a uh, you might say it's an interpretation of it, that I think is... I agree with. It basically says that each of you should learn how to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who don't know God. And notice he says, each of you. So take that personally. That's not just a command for the church. It's a command for Wayne. It's a command for Bob. It's a command for Judy. It's a command for everybody personally. Put your name in there. It is a command for you, and it is a command for me. Because we live in a world that is not going to help us with this. In fact, if anything, it's going to try to drag us the other direction. And, and the older we get, I guess sometimes it gets a little easier. But to be honest, I mean, at least for the men in the room, I can tell you, it doesn't get a lot easier, even though we don't talk about it a lot. You know, you may be uh, on the, the backside of life, but this, uh, this struggle in our sensual world is not any easier than it was when we were in our 20s. And Paul gives us a reason. There is a reason to stay pure. First of all, there are the consequences. We're told that God judges those. And he, he also uses a, um, 
sort of a, he says, you don't defraud your brother in the matter. This is, this, this means you don't, uh, it probably means that you don't defraud him by uh, being immoral with his wife or with a woman who may be a potential wife in the future. But the point is simply this, verse 7, God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but God, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So one reason to stay pure in this godless age, Paul says, is because of the consequences. Another reason to stay pure is far more noble, because God's not called us for the purpose of impurity, but rather sanctification. That is, he's called us to live our lives separate, to dedicate our lives and separate from the world. In a similar mindset, Paul said in the book of Romans, he said to, uh, for your body, consider your body a living sacrifice. And in another context, he says, you are not your own. Your body is not your own. It's the temple of the Holy Spirit that, that God is in you. And he says a similar thing here in verse 8. He who rejects this teaching is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you, or literally the God who gives his Holy Spirit into you. The Spirit of God is living within you. This should make a difference. The Spirit of God is within you. Our body houses the Spirit. I remember one time I was in Nashville uh, trying to get a flight, or my flight home had been canceled, and I got a notice for it, and they said, well, it's rescheduled for the next day. So I went the next day, went there and found out, no, it's rescheduled again. I think that like canceled it all together, and it was going to be another 24 hours. And uh, I thought, I don't really want to wait another 24 hours. So I, I was, you know, the whole group of people who were on the plane, this was announced to all of us as we're all standing there, and there's this collective gasp, you know, oh, well. And I thought, and I guess I said it out loud, and I thought, well, I could, I could drive back to Dallas faster than, than um then wait another 24 hours. So I, I think I actually said that out loud. And there was this woman standing beside me. And she said, would you like to rent the car together? I said, no. I said, first of all, I'm married. And second of all, no. So anyway, and then she began working at some, some other angle. But I just thought, this is either a person who is, has no discretion or just, I, I don't know what it was. But there was, there's this mindset that, you know, heck, this is, this is the 21st century. Propriety is not important. This is a message, as Paul says, that we need it as much today as we needed it 20 centuries ago when the ink was dripping wet. In fact, the ink on our Bibles is like it's dripping wet. It is so relevant to the human condition and the human uh, fault that we're struggling with. Purity, sexuality, including sexual orientation, is not the standard of man. Notice it says here in verse 8, he who rejects this is not rejecting man. This is not my opinion. Uh, it, it's God. In fact, if anybody, if anybody tells us, look, you're, you're homophobic or you're, you're, you're prude or your Christian life is, you know, it's really sort of traditional. It's not 
you know, God, God's a God of love. So, well, you know, the God you're referring to actually wrote some stuff down, and here it is, and I'll tell you what, this is what we have a problem with. It's not me. It's this. In fact, I've got problems with it, too. But I'm, but I'm willing to say this is the Word of God, and even though I may not like it at times, it's what we're called to. It's a standard that is higher than us. And if we didn't need it, if we didn't need to have a standard that was higher than us, we wouldn't need the Bible. If we could get into heaven just our own way, then um, we wouldn't need the Word of God. It's a lifetime assignment to grow. And so Paul says, excel still more. Speaking of excelling, look at verse 9. Here's another area that we can grow in. He says, Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren who were in Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. And attend to your own business and work with your hands, just as we commanded you, so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. So Paul commends them again. Notice he is encouraging them. He says, you're doing a great job. He says, the lover of the brethren, verse 9, you don't need me to write to you about it. You're doing a great job. But then verse 10, he says, but now excel still more. It's very much the same thing he did up in verse 1. He says, you're doing a great job with it, but excel still more. Don't just consider yourself content with where you are, but excel still more. And he says, the love of the brethren. In Greek, the love of the brethren here is a reference to um, kind of the potluck lunch love. It's the we all feel good when we're together type of love. It's In fact, we get the word the city Philadelphia from this this word. It means the city of brotherly love. It's the, the city of feel-good love. And there's nothing wrong with it. It's just, you know, when somebody, uh, when somebody throws a wrench in the works, all of a sudden the brotherly love is gone. And that's when this other love has to kick in. He says, but the love that God teaches us is a different kind of love. It's a love of sacrifice. This is the word agape, or the verb agape. It's the idea of sacrificial love for the benefit of others. Now, keep your finger here in 1 Thessalonians, if you would, and turn back to the left to John chapter 13. John 13. I'm actually reading John in my personal Bible reading right now, and uh, notice something that sort of resonates with Sorry, I was looking at that clock. It's got an awkward glare on it. I thought it said 12 o'clock. Oh, it doesn't. So anyway, I'm reading in John chapter 13, and I noticed a, a nice connection to what we're reading here in 1 Thessalonians. John 13, uh, look right at verse 1. John says, he writes, now before the Passover, or the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come forth from God, 
and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself. So, ironically, the greatest person in the room, you've got 13 men with dirty feet and no servant to wash their feet, which is sort of interesting because you remember when Jesus had sent Peter and John to go check out you know, the upper room, what did he tell them to look for? You're going to find a man carrying water, and he will show you where the upper room is. So this is probably a servant. But when it's time for everyone to show up that night, the man with the water just isn't there. I wonder if Jesus arranged that. I don't know. Maybe he did. But for whatever reason, the propriety for a wealthy home was not followed. It's like, this almost looks like it was done on purpose. Jesus gets up, does the work of a menial servant, and begins to wash feet. How did he do that? Why did he do that? The text tells us three reasons that we just read. Look at them again, verse 3. Jesus, knowing, here's number one, the Father had given all things to his hands, then second, that he had come forth from God, and third, that he was going back to God. Those three things. First of all, knowing the Father had given all things into his hands. This is the role that God had given Jesus. He knew it. He knew what his role was. He was confident in that. Second, that he had come forth from God. He had a relationship with the Father that was absolutely secure. He knew this. And then finally, that he was going back to God. He had a hope. He knew exactly where he was going. Jesus had a confidence in his role, in his relationship, and in his hope. Therefore, verse 4, he got up from supper, laid aside his garments, and washed feet. Christ was so confident in who he was, his role, his relationship with the Father, and in the hope of where he was going, that he could serve without any, uh, without any chink in his reputation or his ego. He could serve confidently because he knew uh, nothing is taken from me by me being a servant. And then he therefore becomes our model as well because each of those things is true of us as well. We have a role, we have a relationship with the Father, and we have a hope of where we're going. So we can serve because none of those things, which are really all that matter, can ever be taken from us. That's great. Look down at verse 34, same chapter, John 13, 34. Of course, there's a lot more said prior to this, but he says this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And then he begins to tell them, I'm leaving, and they get upset about that. And then look at verse, uh, chapter 14, verse 1. He says, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So, get the big picture. He's commanded them to love one another. He has modeled serving others. And he has, he has done that because he has a hope in where he's going. So those things we, we've, we saw in First Thessalonians as well, which we'll look at when we turn back there. But 
Notice what Jesus is promising them. The hope, he sort of expands on it. What's the hope? He says, I'm going away. But actually, that's good news because I'm going away to prepare something. I'm going away to prepare a place for you. And uh, the word that he uses here when he talks about a place for you or or many dwelling places in my father's house is actually the word that refers to those rooms that were around the temple. It's like I'm going to prepare one of these rooms around the temple. It was really kind of an apartment, which is interesting. When you think about we're going to die and go to heaven and live forever in an apartment. (laughs) But, you know, what's that? The mansion, well, it's sort of, I guess, part of that. In my father's mansion are many apartments. Whatever it is, it's going to be great. But uh, Jesus says, look at the details here. He notes, I am going to my father, that is, to heaven, to prepare a place for you. The only concept of the future that the disciples had in regard to the Messiah was the kingdom, the physical kingdom of God on earth. And so he basically tells them, look, we're going to take you know, a parenthesis in the kingdom of God, that's what you're after. But in the meantime, let me give you some hope. Uh, I'm going to heaven, to my Father, and I'm going to prepare a place. And then he says, I'm going to come and get you and take you to be where I am. So this is a promise, a prophecy of coming to get his people and going back to heaven. It is not a a prophecy of coming and reigning on earth for a thousand years. That's later. That's what we call the second coming. This we have affectionately termed the rapture. They never heard of the rapture before. In fact, this is the first time in the whole Bible that the concept of the rapture is introduced. And, of course, so much is flying by them that they don't make the connection until later. But it's recorded here for us to understand. So flip back to 1 Thessalonians and... Let's tie up this rag rug. Paul is saying the same thing in 1 Thessalonians. He has told us that we serve Christ and we wait for Christ, includes a commitment to growth in purity and in love. Jesus taught his disciples, love one another. He modeled service, and he did it with the expectation of him coming. What had Paul done here in 1 Thessalonians? He, He told them the same thing. You're loving one another, but excel still more. And we are, you turn from, from idols to serve a living God, to serve, and to hope. So it's the same ideas that are there. And both Jesus and Paul now turn to the rapture, to the, um, to the hope that we as Christians look forward to. So 1 Thessalonians 4, look at verse 13. Remember, this is in this context. Usually when we teach about the rapture, we just kind of start at verse 13 and ignore everything that we've already looked at. But verse 13 gives the reason why we do verses 1 through 12, or really actually all of 1 Thessalonians up to this point. Why do we live a life of sanctification to God? Why do we do the hard work of sexual purity? Why do we do the hard work of loving one another? We're told starting in verse 13, because there is a hope. He says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you, 
by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So Paul is basically elaborating on when Jesus began in the upper room that night. Particularly, he notes what's going to happen to those believers who died before the Lord comes. We're given a hope here. He says, I don't want you to grieve as the rest who have no hope. By contrast, we have a great hope. In fact, in the book of Titus, Paul calls it the blessed hope. In the book of 1 Peter, Peter refers to the rapture as what you are to set your mind on, that one thing that you're living for because you realize it could happen at any moment. He says that we don't grieve as those who have no hope. Every one of us, I would say without exception, has lost somebody in this room. In fact, we've had several people who have already talked about that even today, of how we have lost loved ones or friends, and yet we don't grieve as the rest who have no hope. We grieve, but we grieve with hope. We grieve because there is an expectation of hope that we will see them again. In fact, that seeing them again, Paul says, that could happen at any moment. He says how that is going to come about. Um, what happens, he says? Well, he gives us some explanation. This is the classic, the classic uh, paragraph here on what happens at this event. What about those who have died? Uh, well, they're already in heaven, so why are they coming back? Well, Paul tells us God is going to bring with Jesus, those who have fallen asleep. With Jesus, those who have fallen asleep. Seems like just a throwaway phrase, but if you think about it, it totally obliterates the false notion of soul sleep. Have you ever heard of soul sleep? This is the the idea that um, your soul is not conscious when you die, but it just sleeps, and it waits for the day that Jesus will resurrect the whole enchilada. This is not what Paul is teaching. It's not what Christ is teaching. It's not what all of Scripture teaches. All of Scripture, in the times that we see the afterlife, we see it as a place of very much consciousness. There's no sleep to it. The sleep referred to here in the Scriptures refers to one of two things. It either means literal sleep, which is plain enough, or it means it's a metaphor for the body. The soul doesn't sleep. The body sleeps. And it's called sleeping because one day it will awaken. And so Paul refers to it in this way. A number of times throughout the scriptures, we're we're told very clearly this doctrine. When you die, you are in the presence of God. Uh, The epistle of James, for example, says that in death, the body is without the spirit, that there is a separation. Paul wrote that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. There is a separation. So those who have died as believers are present with the Lord Jesus in heaven, and it says that they will come with him at this event called the rapture. And verse 14 says God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Why? So that their soul, now in heaven, will be joined to their resurrected body. And here's the process. Look at verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. Imagine hearing Jesus shout. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we 
who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Comfort one another with these words. Paul says, we who remain. He includes himself, meaning we who are alive. And that also shows that Paul expected it could happen at any moment, that there's nothing else that we're waiting on. We're not waiting for a blood moon. We're not waiting for some political event. We're not waiting for you know, the Middle East to finally calm down. We're not even looking for the face of some saint in a taco. <laughs> we are waiting on nothing but Jesus. And we're told that it could happen at any moment. Paul expected it in his lifetime, potentially. We who are alive, he says, and be caught up together in the air. It's imminent. So here's the second principle. Number two is this, that our commitment to continual growth and serving others stems from our eager hope of Christ's coming. How do you keep going when you want to quit? You're in the middle of the run, and a truckload of hecklers has just left you, and you are deflated. How do you keep going? How do you keep running in the marathon and not just quit or take a shortcut or listen to the voice of the enemy that tells you all kinds of lies? How do you do it? Paul says, we comfort one another with these words, verse 18. You encourage one another with these words that there is a hope that at any moment there is this eager expectation that we will be with the Lord forever. And it can happen. If Notice it says, if we believe, verse 14, Jesus died and rose again. Now, we believe that, don't we? Yes, we do. In fact, you could even translate it, since we believe. Even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. If we believe one, we believe the other. If we believe Jesus' resurrection, we believe our resurrection. And that's what this passage is teaching. But notice it says, the dead in Christ will rise first. I've often wondered, uh, you know, whenever you pass a cemetery, just kind of look at it. I thought, you know, it'd be really cool, wouldn't it, to be standing there in a cemetery at the rapture? I don't know how much they rise first, whether it's a millisecond or whether it's like a good 15 minutes. (laughs) But boy, that would be really, really good to see, wouldn't it? Just be careful where you're standing when you're in the cemetery. (laughs) You don't be right on top of somebody. We get our word rapture from the Latin translation that means to snatch away. Um, The word rapture actually connects to that uh, Latin translation. But uh, some people say, well, the rapture is not taught anywhere else in the Scripture. You know, 1 Corinthians 15 also gives another great uh, explanation of, of this resurrection. But also the word is used of Stephen in Acts chapter 8. Remember in Acts chapter 8 where he's ministering to the Ethiopian eunuch and it says the Spirit snatched him away? And he appeared, uh, appeared at, uh, I think, uh, Caesarea. That, that word for snatching Stephen away is the exact same word here for the rapture. So if you want a picture of what the rapture will look like, just all of a sudden, poof, gone, look at Acts chapter 8, verse 39. That that's, gives us an idea of it. So there's comfort in this time. Comfort one another with these words. But the rapture has another purpose. Paul's already told us, we read it, but let's look at it again. Look back at chapter 1, verse 10. Remember, sort of the summary of our purpose 
is to serve and to wait. Verse 10, and to wait for his son from heaven. That's the rapture. Whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. So see, the rapture isn't just to take us to heaven to have a great time, though that will indeed happen. But the rapture's purpose is to rescue us from the wrath to come. Because as soon as the rapture happens, there is this little matter of about seven years called the day of the Lord begins, where um, we call it the tribulation. And most of the book of Revelation outlines the terrible events that will happen on planet Earth as a result of these seven years. And we're told that Jesus rescues us from the wrath to come. Also look at chapter 5. You see this repeated again. Chapter 5, look at verse 9. Chapter 5, verse 9, Paul writes, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, we who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together in him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you also are doing. Same idea. And this wrath in context is the day of the Lord. Now, in 2 Thessalonians, Paul gets into a lot more details because someone had snuck in and told them, but you missed the rapture. Or, or uh, more, more probably, what they told, were told was the day of the Lord's already started. And they're like, but I thought Paul said the rapture was going to come first. And so they were confused. So he writes 2 Thessalonians to help clear that up. But he says the, but he says the doctrine clearly here, that Christ takes us out of the way so that we're, we escape the wrath to come. Jesus said, don't let your heart be troubled. This is good news. I saw a, uh, a cartoon, a Frank and Ernest cartoon that says, uh, that shows this shabby, crazy looking prophet guy holding up a sign that says, the world ends soon. And uh, somebody comes up next to him and says, so what's your point? <laughs> Isn't that a great question? So what? The world ends soon. So what? Well, so what is that uh, if you knew the future, and for example, if you knew the future of the stock market in a month, we could all make a killing if we knew it. Knowing the future benefits you is the point. And Paul gives us this insight to encourage us to walk faithfully. So how do you keep going when you want to quit? When you're in the marathon of life, how do you keep going? How do you keep growing? Have a commitment to continual growth and serving others that stems from your hope that you know Christ is coming and he could come at any moment. Let's pray. Our Father, the, the psalmist asked the question we can relate to so easily. Why are you downcast, O my soul? And then he answers, put your hope in God. Father, hope of the coming of Christ at any moment is why we keep going. It's how we keep going. And I pray for any who are here today that the world is uh, heckling them from the back of the truck, that they're trying to run the race, that they're trying to be faithful to you. But boy, it's so challenging. The beginning of the race is exciting. The end of the race is glorious. But the middle of the race, that marathon is so hard. Strengthen each of us today. Draw us to the scriptures on a personal, daily basis 
and speak to us the words of life that we need to hear to keep going, to keep growing in eager expectation of our Savior. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.